Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I've decided I like it when my bangs are really short. <laughs> hey, Betty Page, baby. I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. I'm kind of sweaty. Oh, yeah. Well, you're in a sweatshirt. Yeah. For comfort, for coziness. Mm, I'm kind of cold. I'm thinking about putting my sweatshirt on. This is so wild. Wow. I'm a, I'm a dressed, apparently, Melissa says, I'm dressed like Todd from BoJack Horseman. <laughs> I'm wearing a red sweatshirt and a yellow beanie, and I did not realize that that was sort of a Todd cosplay. Love it. Yeah. Aaron Paul, great actor. <laughs> you know, I saw him at an airport. Really? Right? Like what Breaking, when Breaking Bad <gasps> was just starting. I actually haven't really seen much of Breaking Bad, but I started watching like the beginning of it before I went to boarding school. And I saw him at an airport. Or no, where was I? I must have gone to college. college. I, don't know. I started watching a little bit of it. And then um, I saw him at an airport and I was like, you're so great in that show. And I think it was like right before he became like mega famous. So he wasn't like annoyed. Wow. That's <laughs> you probably were maybe one of the first people to say like it was probably great for him. Maybe. Uh, and I think that's a real memory. Maybe it's a lie. Who knows? I went to a liquor store and him and Walter White and Brian Cranston have a tequila or a liquor that they make together. And there was like a really? big display. Yeah. And then they were, they were later at that liquor store. It's like a BevMo. They were there like um, doing like a signing for their liquor. Wow. Yeah. Why? Every celebrity makes a liquor. That's what it is. Why is that? If you're, because it's like a way to make easy money. If you are a, a celebrity, you, you get in on a liquor store, a liquor, you get in on some kind of like brand deal. I just learned that Lance Bass owns part of Rocco's West Hollywood. And also part of Heart, he owns like part of two nightclubs in WeHo. That's brilliant. You gotta diversify. Right. That's brilliant. I think what's funny is that JLo came out with a liquor, but she famously doesn't drink. Really? <laughs> yeah. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Wow. <laughs> you know, we were a little bit before this discussing my breakup. And one thing that I always think about is that Brad Pitt and Ange Angelina Jolie are like in a death match fight over their vineyard. Did you know oh, that? Really? Yeah, like one of the no. biggest things that's a contention for them is that they own this vineyard together for wine. Wow. They're selling a wine or whatever. And it was like, it's like a big part of their divorce proceedings. I have to say that like, there's nothing about someone being a famous celebrity that makes me think that they would make quality liquor <laughs> or wine. Like, do you know what I okay, mean? Okay, but I currently have Casamigos, which is George Clooney's liquor. And it's not bad. Uh -huh. All right. But he seems to have good taste. Right? Like, see, that's someone who you would trust their alcohol. True. I guess that's Because you're like, oh, they have good taste. Anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Allison, if you had your own liquor brand, what would it be called and what is it? Oh, my gosh. It would be called Yucky. <laughs> 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 it would be. <laughs> it would be. Just like this alcohol that's so intense that all that you need is just a, one drop on your tongue and you get wasted. It's ever clear. Yeah. Okay. You know what's funny is that I can actually see the branding for Yucky. <laughs> like I can see it so clearly. And I don't right? hate it's like it. You just need the tiniest amount to get drunk because you think alcohol is yucky. You would pick it up. If you saw it at the store, you would pick up a brand called Yucky. I think so. 
Or it's like an IV shot. That's how you would get drugs. You don't have to taste it. Oh, my God. You buy it from the store and just put it yeah. in your vein. That could that's there's no way that could go wrong. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that I could beat the branding of yucky. <laughs> Maybe I make one called lucky and it's next to yours. And it's sort of a Russian roulette. Like only some of the bottles have alcohol. Oh, so you have so you buy like and you're like, I don't know. Let's hope I get lucky. No one would buy that. That sounds like a horrible business idea. <laughs> they would buy multiple bottles. OK, why wouldn't you just buy a re- oh, just for like the thrill of it? The thrill. All right. Oh, no. Here's what it is. It's that it's that there's five that are regular alcohol and one is poison. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anyway, we have a great episode for everyone today. We're going to be talking to Shira Rosenbluth all about eating disorders. So if this if this interview is not for you, no sweat. It's not for you. And you could jump back in uh, for topics. And later, we're going to be discussing Beyonce because Melissa flew to Houston to see her concert and we want to hear all about it. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Shira Rosenbluth. So stay tuned. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of 
a Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box. And there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Shira Rosenbluth, a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice in New York and California. She's been working in the eating disorder field in a variety of settings since, and she specializes in the treatment of disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image dissatisfaction using a weight-inclusive approach. Amazing. Hello, Shira. Hi, how are you? So good to be here. So good to have you. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. I've been a, an avid Twitter follower of yours for some time. Um, and, you know, I think that eating disorders are a really tough topic. So just up top, you know, for everyone who's not in the, in the mood to hear about this or talk about this today, we totally get it. But what do you think is something that people just really don't understand about eating disorders? I think people still in 2023 still see a thin white woman and assume that's the only person that has an eating disorder when in fact um, black people have them and queer people have them and every like fat people have them. It's not discriminatory and it's not, you know, a one size and one look. And it's still like kind of one of the only images we get to see online these days still. Yeah, I know. I, I had like a, a fight in one of my classes in my grad program where I was like, fighting back up against this, I, like anorexia diagnosis is sort of based off of weight, right? And can you kind of explain like why that should change? Yeah. Um, so actually, I think the, the, the latest statistics are that like 6% of people with eating disorders are, you know, quote unquote, like underweight according to the BMI, which is proven to be trash. Um, and 6%, that's so little that we're talking about like 90 something percent of people are not underweight and have an eating disorder. And specifically with anorexia, I think when we focus only on people that are underweight than people that go to the doctor and either have lost weight or are severely restricting and have major medical issues. They're not even being questioned about their restriction. And so what happens is people are not getting diagnosed for like 
could be like decades, it could be ever with an eating disorder and not getting the help they need, which is scary because I mean, not to be morbid, but we're talking about people's lives at stake. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. People have a, don't want to believe that atypical anorexia exists. Um, I think they're very used to the image that they've seen, you know, since like the nineties, the but yeah, people have anorexia at any weight and it seems to be like a topic of contention for some reason. Can you explain the BMI and like what is wrong with it? Yeah, I mean, we, we probably need like seven podcasts for that. But <laughs> I think, first of all, it was created by a mathematician and it was which and it was never meant to be the way it's used for now medically. And so, I mean, just even the fact that it's and it was also created uh, w- with only looking at like European men. So we're already missing like black people and we're already missing women and we're already missing like so many other um, populations. And we're using that to then just decide that that's how everyone in the world should be. It's also not accounting for muscles or anything like that. There's so many problems with the BMI. It's so flawed. There's other ways of assessing people's health, but we're still using that people. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but insurance is used as a reason to deny people um, health care. Like it's just so bad. So, right. So the BMI is used in insurance to decide like if somebody, you know, is has some sort of pre-existing condition or something. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, but I'm even talking about like life insurance. People will get denied the ability to have life insurance based on what the BMI says. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, it's really sad. I think in like 1998, insurance companies decided very arbitrarily to change the BMI numbers. So all of a sudden, millions of people became overweight overnight, which just is like another way to see how unhelpful the BMI is. Like this is one day a person wasn't overweight and the next day they were because they decided to change it. And why did they change it? Because around that time, um, weight loss drugs were coming out at the same time. And so it was very convenient to be able to sell it to millions more people. So it's interesting, like when you're talking about diagnosing anorexia, it's like looking at someone's weight is one thing. But I imagine in an ideal world, a doctor would say, and what do you have for breakfast? Like, what are your breakfast, lunch and dinner plans? Are you getting vegetables? Are you like rather than just looking at someone, but sort of asking, because if you have a a, a fat person or someone that you wouldn't necessarily not sort of a, a very thin white woman, as you're saying, you see in media, you could maybe as a clinician ask more questions about lifestyle to sort of get to that diagnosis. That's what that's what I'm hearing when you when you say that. Exactly, exactly. Because, yeah, I want to ask questions when people come into my office. I don't want to look at them and then make assumptions of their diagnosis or what their eating habits are like. I mean, it, it also is a disservice to thin people too, right? If a thin person comes into your office, they are depressed. They don't ever get off their couch. They only order fast food every single day for every single meal. And we're not asking them questions about like, are you getting out? Are you sleeping enough? Do you have fr- like, I mean, what are your eating habits like? Ev- everyone loses out with fat phobia. Um, and so, yeah, when somebody comes into my office, I don't want to look at their body and then make assumptions about what they're doing and what their lifestyle is like and if they have an eating disorder and what kind of eating disorder they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exactly the point. Can we sort of break down the main types of, of eating disorders and how they're different and how people tend to kind of fluctuate between them? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that last point because I can, you know, talk about the differences and and what they are, but it's so common for people to go from one to another. So I don't even know that like it matters that much, but yeah, with anorexia, you typically are restricting your food. And then with bulimia, there's usually some sort of compensation, whether it's purging through vomiting or purging through laxatives or exercise. Um, And there's binge eating disorder where there's no, typically no compensatory behaviors, but 
there usually is always some sort of restriction that's driving the binging, not always, but almost always. And so even though we say there's no compensatory behaviors, there is usually restriction driving the binging. Um, and then there is um, OSFED, the other specified, which is just probably like a mix of all of them or just not clinically the amount of times that you need to purge to consider bulimia or whatever it might be. And actually probably atypical anorexia might fall under that because right now it's not um, its own diagnosis or it's not part of anorexia, which it should be. And then there's ARFID, which is more about um, textures and more about maybe lack of pleasure in food. It's not really driven by looks or shape or size or anything. It's more driven by, yeah, like having an aversion to textures, having a fear of, of vomiting and all that kind of things, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think something people don't realize is how um, prevalent binge eating disorder is and how that's actually, I think, w- the most common one. Can you dive a little bit more into that and, and how so many people don't even know the signs that they have it? Yeah. And I, I also think that with binge eating disorder, it was one of the more recent ones. And so I think there's, and I think there's a lot of shame attached to that one. Like there's a lot more shame attached to binging. And there's almost this like sort of weird hierarchy when it comes to eating disorders, people like striving to have anorexia as if that's like a good thing, even though it's a horrible illness. And then binging disorder is seen as the one that like nobody wants. And so I think that's probably part of what we see when people don't really talk about it. But binging disorder is so common. And I think the other thing that I talked about a little bit a second ago is that we nobody talks about the restriction that drives it. And so unfortunately, I see so many clinicians and so many people thinking that you have to just control yourself more or you need to restrict certain foods to um, get better. But the only way to be free of binge eating disorders by allowing yourself to have all foods, which can feel really scary. But that's really the only way to start like healing your, like to start the healing journey. I don't think that part is talked about enough that restriction really is part of binge eating disorder. Because you think of binge eating disorder and you think, oh, the person just can't stop eating. Or, you know, unfortunately, like, oh, they're lazy or they're just whatever it might be. And that's why, again, people are not talking about it or ashamed of all of it. What do you think are like the driving factors that lead people to have eating disorders? That's a, that's a really big question. And I think it's it's never usually just one thing. Um, people like to say biology loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And so um, it's definitely there's a very big brain based component. But then trauma or um, society or the car- grief or loss or like all these other things can come into play. But usually you need to have the temperament um, and genetics for it. What does that mean? Would it help to hear like an example of from, from me and my experience and my personal experience of my eating disorder? Yeah, it would. Okay. So um, I, my eating disorder started when I was about 10. None of my other siblings had eating disorders, even though we were all like raised in the same environment. But I think I definitely had the genetics for it. And then all it took was... I mean, I had a lot of people in my family. I basically learned in my family that in order to be loved, I needed to be thin. So I got that very strong message. And then all it took was one diet. And that diet was like the catalyst for 20 plus years of my eating disorder. But again, other people have, you know, similar things with like parents that are really awful about their food and their bodies. They live in the same world that tells us that in order to be okay in this world, you need to be thin. But I think because I had the genetic component, within two weeks of starting a diet, my eating disorder kind of snowballed. Wow. Wow. And like, how hard is it for families to acknowledge their role in in this with their children? I mean, I think it depends on the family. I think for me, specifically, like my parents, if I think it took the point where I was impatient somewhere, and the doctor kind of was like, would you why do you think you're still struggling so much after six weeks of being impatient? 
And one of my parents just was quiet. And I looked at them and I was like, because this parent would love me more if I lost weight. And my parent was silent. And I think that's when they realized. And, and then they said, oh, Shira knows I wouldn't lie to her. And that's true. So I think in that, it was like a horrible circumstance situation, but it kind of hit my parent. I was like, oh, I need to go get help and like work on this because this is something that I contributed to. Um, and that's a very like intense example, I think, of something like that. But I think, unfortunately, some parents never, never learn, never can see, never grow. Um, and then some parents, it, all it takes is their kids struggling to, to realize that they need to work on this. We're going to take a quick break for commercials and we'll be right back with our guest. We're back. I don't think people realize because of like the diet culture and stuff that we live in that these things are deadly. Like I was shocked to learn. So like Terry Schiavo was like a huge case, which in the 90s, which was everywhere. And it was uh, about a woman who fell into a coma, a vegetative state. And the whole story was, as I remember it growing up, was, oh, you know, the husband wants to take her off life support, the parents don't want to, and it was this big thing. And I was shocked that it was not mentioned really at all, that the reason, one of the big reasons that she fell into this coma was um, an eating disorder. And that's like never discussed because I think people don't want to admit that it's something that's like deadly. Yes, I remember that too. And I remember no one talking about it. And at that point I was struggling with bulimia and that's what she was in a coma for. And I remember feeling, I remember bringing my phone with me. This might be a lot of information, but I remember bringing my phone with me in the bathroom for the first like few weeks after that happened because I was afraid um, something would happen to me. Yeah, no one talks about it, but I mean, that's, that's why this is so serious. That's why this isn't like a conversation about like, oh, cute. Like I think people glamorize eating disorders. People make it into this, like not big a deal. People kind of, laugh when people talk about fat phobia, but we're talking about literal lives, right? Whether it's from fat phobia, whether it's from or like weight stigma, or whether it's from eating disorders. I know three people that have died from the various treatment stays I was in as, as a kid. And I worry about some of my clients, like it's really, really scary. And it's sad and scary and maybe morbid and people don't want to think about it, but it's the reality. Yeah. It's not just, oh, you're wasting away. It damages your heart. It damages your esophagus. It damages your teeth. Like there's like, you know, you like physically you are falling apart. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because a lot of times people will have an eating disorder for so long. Nothing will ever happen. Their labs are perfectly fine. Everything's fine. And they think they're invincible. I mean, that's I remember what was my experience, right? Like for a long time, nothing happened. But people don't realize that your body can only take it so much. We don't know when that is, right? For some people, it's only a year. For some people, it could be 20 years. But your body will eventually catch up and be like, no, I don't want to do this anymore, right? For me, it was my, my labs were completely normal. Everything was fine. I was like, see, I'm fine. Like, it's not a big deal. I can keep doing this. Like, my body likes this. Like, whatever you try to convince yourself when you're sick. And then it wasn't until a relapse when I was like 29 that all of a sudden my body was like, no, we are not doing this anymore. Right? And within two weeks, my labs were completely like in a really scary place. My doctors wanted me in a hospital. My body was falling apart and because my body, you know, decades later, it was like, we're done. And so I think it's scary because we don't know what that time is for anybody, right? It could be six months. It could be six years. It could be 16 years, but it, the eating disorder sometimes feels invalidated when they see that like normal lab number and it's like, see, I'm fine. But that's not true, right? So regardless of whether or not someone has physical 
manifestations of their eating disorder, it's still very serious. I'm so curious about your path of healing. Like what worked for you in terms of, of getting a handle on this in your life? Yeah. Um, I guess my path is maybe a little bit more unique because so when I was 14, that was the first time I was hospitalized for my eating disorder, but I just kept getting sicker and sicker in treatment because even in treatment, the idea was, you know, if you're thin, you have an eating disorder and if you're fat, you still need to restrict. So in the hospital and treatment centers, my doctors were encouraging restriction, encouraging my eating disorder. And I didn't understand like why I couldn't get better in the systems. Right. And I kept thinking, well, I must be this really bad, non-compliant patient. Something's wrong with me. And I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker in treatment. And it wasn't until, you know, my, my relapse or like, it's, I don't know that I was ever fully recovered. I think I was in some sort of like quasi recovery in my twenties. But then when I had this, like really this relapse that all of a sudden was very much in the public eye, because at that point I had a following on Instagram and people started commenting on my weight and I couldn't hide it anymore. I couldn't pretend it wasn't happening because it was so visible to all the people that were following me. I got help and I got bad help again because I went to a treatment center that promised that they look at all bodies and treat them well, but they didn't. And it, I, I honestly, I had to then get support from my community and my friends and my family. And a lot of them work in the same field that I do. So I was getting help from my colleagues and my friends. Um, I stayed with one of my friends for two months where she essentially like treated it like a high, like a residential treatment center in her house where she made sure I was eating all my meals and um, keeping them down and not exercising and like keeping me safe. And for the first time in my life, I was able to recover in like a safe place where they were like, we don't, we just want you to get well. And whatever body you're meant to be in, like we trust your body. We know that it's, it wants to be where it wants to be. And we don't have an agenda (laughs) for where it wants to be. And so I felt safe for the first time in my life. And that's really when I started to heal. Um, And now I'm in a place that I genuinely never, ever thought I could be. I don't want to sound like cheesy, but I'm so grateful every single day because I genuinely thought this was my life and I would never get better. So I'm, yeah, I'm really grateful. And now I can like have a life and not have it completely consumed by calories and numbers and scale and food. And I have a partner and I can have a real relationship with her because I'm not in a relationship with my eating disorder. You know, it's just, it's really freeing and I'm really happy about that. (laughs) That's amazing. I love also that you've now you do so much activism around this. And I'm curious the pushback that you receive, right? Because people will not let it go that being fat is unhealthy, right? Like that's what everyone's main like talking point is. It's like, but you're going to die, right? Like, so how do you combat that backlash or that people coming at you with this like one thing that's not (laughs) even true? Yeah. I mean, it always makes me laugh when people are like, oh my God, well, you're going to die in early death. And it's like, yeah, if you keep telling me I'm going to die in early death, I'm going to have major anxiety about it. And then maybe I will die in early death, right? Like all of that um, anxiety that people put on fat people is stress. And we know that stress leads to poor health. So it's just, it's ironic. I think for me, I set really good boundaries on social media at this point. I didn't always, but I started to like shut off my DMs because I wasn't interested in receiving feedback I didn't need. I've also surrounded myself with really awesome people and have a really good support system. But I think, I think also at this point, given that this is what I do for a living and um, I've just been exposed to all this for so long, I know I'm, it's all the same. Like everyone thinks they're so original. Like I've heard that comment like 18,000 times. You know, once in a while it stings obviously, but like, oh my God, like I can, yeah. Like I, I guess I know, I know what's coming. I know the comments, they're all the same. And it's also interesting people are like, I'm all for body positivity as long as you're healthy. 
And it's like, oh, I didn't realize there was like a weight limit on whether or not people should like have respect and like access to care and access to anything. So yeah, it's all the same talking points every time. But it's wild because it's like, well, actually what's unhealthy is uh, not eating. (laughs) I know. And it's also funny because nobody, when I was thin in my eating disorder, I was congratulated. I was praised. I was asked like, tell me your secret. How did you do this? How did you get here? I was literally dying. I was killing myself. And you know, when I was in my illness, it was very secretive and I wasn't, I wasn't talking about what was going on, but I almost wish, you know, when somebody asked me, what's your secret? I wanted to be like anorexia, you know, because imagine if people like said the truth, that that was the truth. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think a lot about the way that I grew up with like diet culture and how like Weight Watchers started and it was all of this like very intense, like diet culture stuff. And then it kind of came back to oh, no, actually, we want women to be thick. And then it like came back to like, actually, no, we you have to be super thin. But even in the in the thick trend, it was still like flat stomach, like unachievable kind of stuff or naturally unachievable. And then like, it's so hard to get, I think, like older generations out of that mindset. Like, I have a friend whose mother has cancer. And the mom will constantly be like, well, at least I'm it's like I'm thin now. And like just like my the way that my mom talks about weight, the way that my aunt talks about weight, like it's like so deeply ingrained. I wonder if if do you think that like this generation has a better handle on it or do you think it's kind of a timeless problem? I think that some people in our generation have a better handle on it. But unfortunately, like you're we're seeing now, right, Ozempic is the latest craze. There's always something. Even when it was like, you know, quote unquote popular to be thick, it was still, like you said, in a very specific way. And then wellness culture was like a huge thing. And so mm-hmm. there's always these unattainable standards no matter what. And we still live in a world where, I mean, people can't access like medical care because they're in a certain body or they're, mm-hmm. they're avoiding doctors or they can't find clothes that fit them. Like we're not living in a world that's okay to fat people at all still. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that even though there are people that have more of an understanding of how like weight stigma and fat phobia play a role in this world, I don't think it's the mainstream. But I do, even for like older people that are still very, you know, they had decades and decades of all of the dieting and learned that like to be thin is the only way. I think that the same way we learned something, they can too, but it's just that it doesn't happen overnight. Like it's not going to be they hear this one thing and they're like, oh, everything I learned in my life was wrong. And now I'm just going to like see the light and like now realize that. I think it's a process. And I think mm-hmm. the same way it's a process for all of us. We don't just hear it one time. It takes months and months to kind of undo. I think it can happen for the older generation too. It's just not going to happen overnight and from one conversation. And that can feel frustrating, but I have seen so many people like actually over time make a lot of changes. When it comes to like not just fat phobia, I think for me, whenever I've gone into disordered eating, it's been about control like a lack of control of my circumstances, my situation, my my family life, anything like that. When that's come up, it, it hasn't been like, oh, I want to be thin necessarily. It's been this is the only part of my life that I can control. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I do think that whenever someone says, what what is the reason for anorexia? And everyone's like, oh, it's just about getting control. I think that can be really overplayed, but of course it does have some part for some people. And I also want to be clear that not everyone develops disordered eating or an eating disorder because of fat phobia or weight stigma. That's like maybe one part of it, but it's not, I mean, people have it for trauma or for, I mean, for so many different kinds of reasons. And 
sometimes I feel like control over is oversimplified. Like it's usually there's like a deeper meaning. Like what are you running from? What are you trying to avoid feeling? What do you need control from? Like it's it's more complicated than just oh eating disorders are about control. I'm not saying that you said that, but I think it's like something that's just like oversimplified when it comes to eating disorders sometimes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about restriction because I think that even people that aren't meeting, you know, the clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder are dealing with restriction in their life and and this relationship towards food that maybe isn't the most adaptive. So what are, why is restriction like so harmful? Yeah. And it's also, I think it's so complicated because restriction also is so normalized, right? Like where everyone's like, oh good, you have an amazing, you have amazing self-control and discipline. And um, it's like, oh, I'm going to have a big dinner. So I'm going to skip my breakfast. And, like, it's such a normalized thing in our culture. And why it's so problematic is, I mean, number one, because we need food to live. <laughs> our brains and our bodies function best when we have nutrition. It's kind of actually amazing to see the difference in people without even any like psychological aspect of recovery where they're like working through things just from the food alone, how people like completely shift in their personalities and their ability to do things and concentrate and focus and live their lives. And actually, I mean, restriction is so bad because all it does is make you think about food 24 seven, right? Your entire life. I remember when I was younger in my eating disorder and I was restricting, I used to watch Buzzfeed videos at night of people just eating food, right? Like, or I just watched like, I'd read menus as if it was like, I don't know, a novel, like the most incredible (laughs) New York Times bestseller or something. Like I was so preoccupied with food. I wouldn't eat it, but I would read about it and I'd watch people eat as, and honestly, you know, like mukbangs are so like, they're still trending on YouTube. I really think a big part of it is because people are hungry. People are like, like you said, even if you don't have a full blown eating disorder, there's still like levels of restriction in most people's lives. Cause we've learned to that restraint is important in eating and that we should all be always be watching what we're eating. And I think we just have like a collective nation of hungry people that are preoccupied with food. And I promise you that since I've gotten into like my recovery, food is boring a lot of the times. Like it just doesn't hold the same power because I'm nourished and I'm not, I'm not hungry. Mm. And again, like it doesn't have to mean that you have to be at this really scary level of restriction for it to impact your life. And the only time you really see that difference is when you're actually like fed and eating appropriately, where you're like, oh, wait, like now I see like what, 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 what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry about those videos. Yeah. <laughs> Probably watched <laughs> us do it. <laughs> Did you guys do it too? We were on BuzzFeed. Oh, I know. I used to watch Ladylike and I used to watch like all the things, but no, but it was like the food, it was the specifically like they would go and try foods. Tasty. It was tasty, but it was also... It was also like the three guys, the try guys maybe, and they would like go around and try different fruits. And I like now, honestly, not not in a bad way, but the idea of watching that now is boring. Like it doesn't appeal <laughs> to me. But like back then, I was like, this is fascinating, and I need to like watch every single video of them eating food and trying food. And now it's like, hmm, I can watch something else, please. Wow. Yeah, I mean, even something I've been working on is allowing myself to eat what I want. And to be like, if I want to eat that, like I can do it. And the thing that I do that's like kind of maybe weird is like at night, I'll be like, I'm going to have a huge breakfast tomorrow. I'm like, I want to have this and I want to have that. And I like plan this huge breakfast and I like allow myself to, to say that if that if when I wake up, I still want that, I can have it. And then most of the time when I wake up, I'm like not that hungry and I don't end up doing it. But there's just something about like, vocalizing and allowing myself to say that like, if I want this, I can have it. That feels like healing. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's interesting because I'm also curious, like, are you eating enough during the day? Like, are you hungry at night? Is something because like, I, I'd be curious about like why you're thinking about your breakfast the next morning. Maybe you need a snack at night, but that's like a whole other <laughs> story. I'm thinking about it because I I have the munchies <laughs> and I have nighttime anxiety that I treat with weed. Um, <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, have, I have people that like are obsessed with um, ice cream, for example. And they're like, I could never have ice cream in a house because if I have ice cream, I'm just going to eat it all. And so what do I do with them? It sounds counterintuitive, but counterintuitive, but I'm like, okay, get five ice cream containers and put it in your freezer. And they might eat to the point where they're sick the first night, the second night, maybe for a few weeks. But after a while, ice cream is just ice cream. And then they'll come to me and they'll be like, Shira, I had my ice cream in my freezer for three weeks and I forgot it existed. Like the only way you can do that is by getting to a place where ice cream is just like any other food and you let yourself have it. So really like normalizing and like letting yourself have food is the way to feel free around food. It loses its power. Exactly. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. <laughs> Tatala T2. <laughs> 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 <laughs>